Let me tell you about Billy Graham, and I think I could probably happily tell you a story about Billy Graham every single time I preach. I owe my salvation to Billy Graham because my father was saved in Syracuse, New York at a Billy Graham crusade. So I owe a lot to Billy Graham. I have a huge respect for him. And there was a time when Billy Graham was driving through a small southern town when he was stopped by a policeman. Now, can you picture Billy Graham being stopped by a policeman, and he was charged with speeding? I love Billy Graham. He's the best. And he admitted his guilt, but he was told by the officer that he's going to have to appear in court. So he goes to court, and the judge asked him, Quote, guilty or not guilty. So when, when Billy Graham pleaded guilty, the judge replied, because he had to, that'll be $10. A dollar for every mile you went over the limit. Now, real quick, wouldn't it be even a better story if it was like 40 miles per hour over the limit? Billy Graham. Okay, back to the story. True story. Suddenly, the judge recognizes the famous minister, and he says these words, and as far as I know, this is a true story. He said, you have violated the law. The fine must be paid, but I am going to pay it for you. And he takes a $10 bill from his own wallet. He attaches the $10 to the ticket, and then afterwards, he takes Billy Graham out, and he bought him a steak dinner. Now, Billy Graham said this, that is how God treats repentant sinners. Now, I want you to hold on to that story, and I want you to get your mind around it. He was guilty, Billy Graham was. He had been speeding. And the law has no mercy, by the way. The law is the law. It's not designed to have mercy. And so despite the fact that he's Billy Graham, the famous minister, he broke the law, and the law says, you owe money. But the judge had mercy. The judge had grace. And the judge not only paid his ticket, but he went out and blessed him. That is how God deals with repentant sinners. Now, I want you to hold on to that. We're going to start in Jonah, and then we're going to get to the Psalms. And we're going to begin, though, in Jonah. So I hope you got it open. Let's get to Jonah. We're in chapter 1. And I want to read to you verse 4 and a little bit of verse 5. So here's what it says. But the Lord hurled. You know, you'll hear this next week. That's the same word for when Saul took a spear and threw it at David with pinpoint accuracy but David was able to get out of the way. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. Now, if you're like me, because this, this truly is me, if you want to know a little bit more about Tim Ackley, and I'm really not very interesting, but I will tell you this, that even when I'm sitting underneath somebody's preaching, and they just read a verse like I just read to you, my mind already is wandering. And I don't know if you're like that. It's really very difficult for me to keep my mind on a speaker. 
If it's got lots of cartoons and images, I'm really good. But when somebody's speaking to me, I have a hard time holding on to it. So let me recap what you just heard from Jonah 1. God hurls a great storm on the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah's in a ship, and he's got a lot of sailors with him. And the ship is so caught up in this hurricane cyclone, that's what they call them on the Mediterranean Sea, that the ship begins to creak and groan and crack, and the sails begin to rip. It's going to break up. And then the mariners, who plied the seas for a living, cried out to their own gods. Now, in order to meaningfully understand what God is going to do for these sailors, we're going to go over to Psalm 107. And when you get to Psalm 107, go ahead and turn there because we're going to be there for, for most of this message. When you get to Psalm 107, you're going to see four different troubles that people fall into. In fact, if you're there, look at verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. So the psalmist is going to give us four different troubles that people get into that God saves people from. In every one of those four, and this is so interesting to me, in every one of those four troubles, it's worded precisely the same. You can look at verse 6, verse 13, verse 19, verse 28. You're going to see it four times. And here's what it says. Then they cried to the Lord, the people that were in trouble, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Now, this is going to take on a lot more meaning when I tell you this. You ready? The word trouble means a narrow place that you get stuck in. You ever played hide and seek like I did growing up in a farm town? We had a farm in the Wiltsy Farm. They created a, a tunnel system through their hayloft. And sometimes they were tight corners, and you would actually get stuck, and that claustrophobia would come upon you. And if you're claustrophobic in tight places, then you're probably already cringing. Well, this word trouble means you've been hemmed in, you're in a tight place, you're stuck, you have no escape, you are under distress. Now, I want you to think of that. That's what trouble is. Trouble of this type is when you can't get an escape from what's come on you. You're in a tight spot in life. We're going to see four tight places that God saves people from. And here they are. Here's the first one. Some people are saved through wandering. Look at verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Well, if you recall a few weeks ago when I shared with you my wandering away from God and how he relentlessly pursued me in his grace, well, my life perfectly paralleled this. You know, I was, I was raised in a Christian home. I knew the truth from a very early age. I remember by my mother's bed with my mom leading me 
through the scripture, I remember crying out to my mom, Mom, I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. I don't know what precipitated that. I don't remember a sermon um, jarring that. I don't remember a Sunday school teacher provoking that. There just became a deep awareness in my soul that I was a sinner. And I wanted to be saved. I wanted to be in heaven. I wanted to be with Christ. I wanted to be with my family. And then all of a sudden, a little bit older when I was in fifth grade, something unexplainable to my own effort, because it wasn't me, it was God, something came over me for almost two years straight. For two years, I could not get enough of the Bible. So I'm in fifth grade. Well, I can tell you what launched this. It was 10 o'clock at night. I will never forget this. I've shared this before with some of you. And I'm reading the Bible, and I told you earlier that if it's got pictures and comics, I'm into it. Listen, I was raised on comic books. I was raised on comic books. I loved them. So I was wanting to read the story of Samson, the superhero of the Old Testament. And so I'm trying to find the story of Samson, and I can't find it. And I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm going, Lord, would you just show me where Samson is? Because I can't find it in the Bible. Finally, I get frustrated. I went out to the kitchen, 10.05 at night now, and I went and got a glass of orange juice. I came back. My Bible had fallen off my bed onto the floor. I laid back on the bed. I brought the Bible up, and there it was, open to the story of Samson. Something electrical, spiritual happened in me. It was very simple, nothing complicated. I just knew at that precise moment, God did that for me. God wants me in his word. And for two years, I could not get enough studying of the word of God. I read it voraciously, cover to cover. So there was a grip, and I knew the truth. God had planted it deeply in me, but in my senior year, I wandered far from God, far deeply into the world. And so you get to verse 5, and it, this is my story. I was wandering in desert ways. I found no way to a city to dwell in. Spiritually hungry and thirsty, my soul was fainting within me. Now that word, wandered. You know what that was used for? It, it was used for somebody who was drunk and stumbling to and fro and wandering. But morally, the word was used a little bit differently. Morally, the word refers to those who had fallen into error or had become misled. They were on the path. They were walking the path of righteousness. But something tempted them off the path. James talks about that in his epistle. Something tempted them off the path. And before they knew it, they were so far off the path that they're now called a wanderer. And these wanderers, they're listless people. They travel all over the map of life. Now listen, you know people like this. I know people like this. They're hot and cold. They're all over the place. You cannot get them to stay on a path of consistency. They find that they end up in this tight place of a barren, lifeless, joyless existence. And some people wander because, well, they, they get involved in a cult. They brought, they're brought into this empty philosophy. 
Others wander because they just stray from God. Others want to do it their own way. Now listen, this was me. They want to do it their own way. They always think they're on the cusp of getting it together, but somehow they keep finding themselves right back in that barren place. Look what it says again. They find no way to a city to dwell in. And their soul faints within them. You know what that means? That means they're full of despair. They're depressed. They're exhausted. They're about to give up. And it's at that moment when they're about to give up that verse 6 comes in. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Hardship, discomfort, loneliness prepared them to cry out to the Lord. Now listen, parents, you know this principle. If you make everything easy for your children, you're not going to teach them endurance. How hard it is for us to not interfere with the making of endurance in the lives of our children. And that's true for even older children. That's even true for adults who aren't our children. Our love and our grief pads it pads the, the wanderer's way. We make them unwittingly comfortable thinking that we're doing the work of the gospel. Yet the gospel, listen, the gospel is doing the very first and necessary work. It's bringing the person to the end of themselves. Listen, if you prevent a person from being broken, you are not working with the gospel. So we get this first example of trouble. It embodies the lonely, depressed person who has given up on making life work and finally turns to God in distress. Listen, you know how I encourage parents, if you've got adult children that are far from the Lord, here's how I always encourage parents, never with an exception. Have the faith and the courage to pray that God will break them. Now, there's a big difference between being miserable and broken. In fact, they're almost diametrically opposed. Being miserable, you hate your situation, and you blame everybody else for it. That's misery. Brokenness is when you hate your situation, and you accept responsibility for it, and you finally turn to God for help. Miserable people don't turn to God. They turn to God to get out of the problem, and then they're right back into it again. Broken people turn to God, and they're ready for the solution. So the psalmist moves us from the wanderer, and now he moves us to the second trouble, the second narrow place that people get stuck. Some are saved through bondage. Look what it says in verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, very evocative language, prisoners in affliction and in irons, I always say that word and my kids laugh at me and mock me. I don't know how to say that any better. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So when people rebel against God, now watch this. This is really important. You've got to get this. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you're theologically savvy or not. It doesn't matter. You can understand this. This is important. If you're going to reject God, you're created. I'm created to be a worship being. You're going to worship something. Listen, every single human being is worshiping something. And if you will not worship God, then you will worship a God substitute. 
And that God's substitute will eventually be your jailer. And you will find yourself in a prison that you cannot escape from. And that prison is dark, and it's lightless, and it's on the road to death. And that prison could be physical, or it could be relational, or it could be spiritual. But it's a prison of your own choosing. It's a prison where sinners go when they reject God. Now let me talk about sin a little bit. It's one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible. Most people, when they hear sin, or when they hear a preacher talk about sin, sometimes they tune it out going, oh, here we go again. They don't understand what sin is. Sin is less it's less about doing things that you should not do or not doing the things you should do. That's not really what sin is really most about. It's about a rebellion against God that dwells in your heart. So every sin that we commit, let's just take me for a minute. Every sin that I, Tim Ackley, commits is me acting out my rebellion. It is high treason against God. So sin is my will against God's will. They're at odds with each other. We're at war with each other. It's my desire to be the highest authority. Listen, sin cannot be reduced to an action. It's a heart attitude against God, not for God, against. In other words, sin is my warring quest to be God, to, re to define my own reality. Now listen, I want you to think about this for a second. I'm going to invite some really deeper thinking for a second. I want you to think, if you, can, if you could possibly do this, when's the last time you sinned, did something you ought not to have done, or did not do what you ought to have done? When's the last time your conscience kind of got stirred up? Now, I want, you, I want to invite you for a moment to begin taking a bit of a deep dive down in that. Think of what it was, think of what you were doing, and I want, you to, I want to invite you to consider, listen, this is really at its deepest level about you and God. Well, Tim, you don't understand. It happened on Route 78, and I was really, really angry at that motorist in front of me, and I gave him the bird. I want you to go down into that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one Jesus says is like it. Love your neighbor as itself. When we do not love horizontally, listen, we have first refused to love vertically. You understand that? So getting angry on Route 78... Maybe getting on their bumper for a couple miles. You're going to teach them a lesson, as I've told my wife. If I don't teach them, they're going to do this again. It's my job to be their moral conscience. She didn't buy that any more than you are. But you're on that bumper, and you are in your heart cursing. You are angry. Jesus says, be angry and do not sin. Paul said that. Jesus says, anger at your brother is equivalent to murder from the heart. 
And so all of a sudden there's this war going on and God is working on your conscience going, listen, do unto others the way you would have others do unto you. Let that go. Forgive. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But you're holding on to it because, listen, it is powerful to be angry. It feels like an elixir going down in your soul. It really feels good to be full of wrath. It's one of the most powerful moments you'll ever have where your throne rises to the level of God's. And you actually say to God, whether you're forming the words or not, but in your soul you're saying, God, either move over or get off. I'm going to define my reality. And they're going to pay. See, every sin that we ever commit is at its root vertical. Sin is rebellion. Sin is heinous to God because it's treason to him. It's a war against him. Now listen, watch this. And when sin becomes a pattern in our lives, then listen, we become prisoners. Look at verse 10. We become prisoners in affliction and in those metal shackle things that I can't really pronounce. This is the picture of addiction. What we're looking at in verses 10 through 16, the trouble, the narrow place that they're stuck in, this is the life of an addict. And addiction is not a modern problem. It is as ancient as sin, and when, it's, when locked into its chains, listen, you wonder if you're ever going to be able to be free. And as we saw with the wanderer, God does not make the path of the addict comfortable i gotta tell you something I've, I've done a lot of counseling that was my earliest career came into ministry from professional counseling i've not yet met but one person in my entire life and i know for a fact that person was lying to me i've not not met one person who was an addict that enjoyed the addiction not one it sucks the life out of you. You cannot be full of joy and be an addict to anything. Whether that is drugs, alcohol, whether that is gambling or porn, whether that is an addiction to gossip, you cannot be full of joy in an addiction. I've not yet met anybody that enjoys it. So you get to verse 12, and here's where they're going to get to eventually. He, God, bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Listen, you can't bail an addict out. It won't work. I've tried it. God can bring those who are locked in addiction to the end of their resources, the end of their self-confidence, the end of their excuses. But listen, there is nobody that can rescue an addict. Verse 12, there is none to help, meaning there's no help on the horizontal plane. There's no help from humanity. God has to do the job. And when he does and they cry out to him in their trouble, he delivers them from their distress. An addict's life is one of darkness. We have a lot of addicts in this church. There are what I like to call the sanitized addicts. Those are the ones that appear like they've got their lives all together. 
deep down behind closed doors or behind a facade that nobody really sees the truth, there is a whole world of addiction in there. And then there's ones whose addiction is being transparent. It's being written all over their lives. They're broken. They're living on the streets, perhaps. They're losing their job again. They're broke because they went gambling yet once again. And all the while, those of us who love them are scratching our heads going, what is, what is going to deliver them? Now watch. There is none to help. Love them. Love them well with truth. But you better pray fiercely for them because the only one that could get them out of the tight place is God. And when he does, when he moves, he will, look at verse 14, he will burst their bonds apart. Because there is no addict beyond the relentless grace of God. But now the psalmist takes us to the third trouble, verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. So some, some are saved through affliction. We've got some are saved through wandering, some are saved through addiction and bondage, some are saved through affliction. And all through the scriptures, all through the Bible, there were people who suffered, listen, because they pursued sin, and they refused to repent. Now, I want you to hear this really, really closely. This is very important. Not all physical suffering is coming from personal sin. I would argue, and this is a theological little nugget for you, every bit of physical suffering is coming from sin ultimately because if sin never entered the world, there would never have been physical suffering. But not all suffering that you have and not all suffering that I'm going to experience is coming because you committed a sin. You know what happened to me in eighth grade? I don't think I've ever told you this. I might have. I don't think I have. I was actually a fairly good athlete. But my mother, which I did tell you, got hit by a train before I was born. She, got, she was in her station wagon. The train hit her through her 300 feet. Chronic back pain ever since. So my mom would go to the chiropractor three days a week, Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays. She still goes twice a week. I got to the point in eighth grade where, and they call it separation anxiety, but let me tell you how it looked in my life. I got to the point in eighth grade where I really began to think that if I sinned, God was going to punish and take away my mom. And the only way that I could protect my mom, listen, from God was to quit sports, quit sports and ride with her out to the chiropractor every day that she went out. Because if I was with her, I could protect her against God. You see, that's the horrific terror when a preacher begins to preach legalism that when you sin, God's got his finger on the smite button and he can't wait to hit it. That's not grace. Thank God that's not what God is like. So physical suffering doesn't always come from personal sin. But sometimes it does. 
David said, there is no health in my bones. Why? Because of my sin. He spoke earlier of the physical consequences of sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Paul warns us that some have died because they have improperly observed the Lord's table. John teaches us that there is a sin that leads to death. So physical suffering comes from a lot of different sources, but certainly one of them is sin. It's undeniable biblically. So the psalmist describes this third group as fools. Do you see that in there? Who lived lives of willful, deliberate sin. The word fools, by the way, doesn't mean unintelligent people. It's those who hate and despise wisdom and their lives are marked with severe immorality. That's a fool. Whatever their heart wants, they pursue without acknowledging the consequences. And the result, look what the text says. They drew near to the gates of death. I have seen people as a pastor. I've seen people who are in such flagrant sin, refusing to repent, become emaciated to the point where I think they're going to die. Where we're pleading with them. Pleading with them to stop what they're doing and to turn around in repentance and let God heal them. I've seen them go to the point where I think they're just going to die. If this third group does repent, look what it says. And they cry to the Lord in their trouble. God will deliver them from their distress. He heals them by his word, which before they foolishly rejected. There's a little bit of a reference, very, very clear actually, to the living word of God, Christ, Jesus Christ. If they turn to Jesus, in other words, he's going to heal them because they've been rejecting the word. And all the healing that God gives to anybody personally from his hand of steadfast love how good god is he only waits for sinners to turn to him and then he showers his grace and mercy on them well there is one for one more group one more group of troubled people some are saved through storms and more than likely, and now we're going to intersect back into Jonah, but stay in, stay in Psalm 107 a little bit longer. But more than likely, there's very few of us that have been saved in the midst of an ocean's fury. But there are storms in life. Now listen, there's storms in life that can fling all of us to the decks of our ships. And we all face these storms in life. And they're going to come against us. And sometimes they come really, really fast imagine being the guy who got a phone call from his doctor and his doctor said i have bad news and worse news and the man says well give me the give me the news and the bad news the doctor says is you've got 24 hours to live and the patient responds i can't even imagine worse news than this and the doctor regretfully replied i forgot to tell you that yesterday Yeah, I, you know what, my wife, I read that to her. She says, you know what, that's just consistent with your bad jokes. Go ahead and say it. <laughs> so that was actually from Denise to you because she loves you. 
So they could come really fast. Storms in life, listen, they don't always have warning. Now, I know I'm speaking your language. Unless you're so young that you've never really tasted one of life's storms, you know what I'm talking about. And they can come and they can, they can blow against you and drop you right down in life. You don't always have preparation. And I've told you this before, you're either in a storm in life or you've left one recently or you've got one that you're going to be get going back into. Storms are part of life. And yet the depths, listen, if you want to know the depths of God's grace, you're going to find it in a storm. You will not find it in waters of tranquility. You're going to find it in the storms. And maybe that storm will be a marriage that seems unavoidably driven to crash on the reef. Or a business that you put your whole life and your hopes into that's slowly failing and you can't seem to turn it around. Or that shocking report that you've got cancer. Maybe it's the collapse of the stock market, the loss of your savings. Maybe it's being let go from your job and now you've got a really uncertain future. Or the death of someone you love or a relationship that you really thought was going to be marriage all of a sudden inexplicably ends. Listen, these storms come against you and they they hurt. They always do. You get to verse 23 and you read with me. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They're not the Navy. These are merchant sailors. They're doing business on the great waters. Their career was on the waters where they continuously, 24, verse 24, saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. You know what that means? Listen, they're seeing this amazing ocean. They're on the Mediterranean Sea. It's an inland sea, 2,500 miles from coast to coast, 190, I don't even know. It's just huge. It's massive. I'm going to tell you the statistics next week. But they're on the Mediterranean Sea, and they're, let me ask you this. I, I would dare you, I would dare you to try to go to the ocean, get right on the pounding surf and spread your arms out wide and go, I am so great. You can't do it. You can say the words, but they won't come from any sincerity. When you're faced with creation that massive that beautiful that wondrous that amazing you are reduced i'm reduced humility comes in the face of creation when you see how wondrous god's works really are so here's these sailors that live on the waters and yet even though they began to see the waters even though they clearly preached a message that there's a god that created them they rejected him they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, and they did not want him. Yet our Redeemer, God, loves them. And what he does, he's going to do again with our sailors in Jonah. Look at verse 25. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. Oh, here we go. God's bringing the storm. 
He commanded it. He raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. You know what that means to be at your wit's end? That's metaphorical language, meaning they tried everything they knew, but they could not save themselves. All their plans for their lives, all their dreams for wealth and success, all of it evaporated in an instant in the midst of that storm. They were out of options. And they knew it, so verse 28 says, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Now, are you looking at that preposition the way that I am? That's virtually the only thing I remember from English class in 11th grade is my preposition table the word in. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. Now watch this. They didn't cry to the Lord before the storm. And they weren't crying after the storm. They were crying to the Lord in the storm. And when they did, God stopped the storm, quieted the waves, brought them to their destination safely. See, God's going to allow friends and he will often drive a person into the narrow dead end called trouble. He's going to allow troubles to come onto our lives. Maybe you're going to fall into wandering. Maybe you're going to get into affliction. Maybe you're going to fall into bondage. God will allow that because he knows this is exactly what you need to get to the place of brokenness that you will finally, even though he's been asking you all of your life, you will finally turn to him and cry out to him in your trouble. And then he will deliver you from your distress. And every time he does this, for anybody that's in trouble, look at verse 43, how the psalm ends. It was because of the steadfast love of the Lord. He's amazing. Now you turn back to Jonah, and we're going to work our way to the end of this message. Turn back to Jonah, and we're going to find that fourth trouble ironically repeating itself in this ship on its way to Tarshish with this rebellious prophet on board. And you get to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4, and here it is again. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So on the Mediterranean Sea, there's a mighty tempest on the sea that's a cyclone. And the ship is in danger of breaking up in that ship. Now look at me for a moment because this is critical. That ship represents our plans in life. I will never forget a gentleman that came in with his wife. He had gotten remarried, and when he got remarried, he had an eight-year-old boy come into his family, her son. This man started working at 12 years old. He, his dream, his plan, now watch, his ship was to retire at 55. And to do two things that he loves to do for the rest of his life. One was to, do, to build a reloading ammo business. 
And secondly, to get really into scuba diving. He was already a scuba diver. He wanted to really get into it. So he had his ship. He had his dream. He had his plan. But then all of a sudden, he married again. And with an eight-year-old facing college bills, well, that ship threatened to break up. And it was creating calamity in his marriage. And they weren't even getting along anymore, threatening divorce. And then they came in to see me. This is what it feels like when your ship begins to break. So the ship represents Jonah's godless plan of managing his life his way. I mean, if you've been in the series, you know God gave him an assignment. He said, no, I'm not doing that. I don't like that assignment. I kind of think it's an option, so I'm going to opt out of it, and I'm going to actually go in the opposite direction from where you were sending me. And he goes to Tarshish on this ship. So the ship represents Jonah's godless plan of managing his life. And not only Jonah, but every mariner, they call them in the Hebrew salts, old salts, that's a sailor's term. Every old salt on that ship, their career, their dreams, their livelihoods. And while Jonah, he's down in the bottom of the ship, fast asleep. Well, listen, up on top, you've got this storm working its redemptive grace. And it looks a lot like Psalm 107. And like the psalmist wrote, they mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. Listen, it got so bad that they took their cargo. This is their livelihood. You show up in port without your cargo, you've lost money for a year's voyage. They take the cargo, they throw it overboard, and later in verse 13, they begin to try to row hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. They were at their wit's end. Listen, this is the purpose of a storm in life, is to get you and is to get me to the wit's end part of life, where you're out of options. Do you know why? You were born like me with a heart full of sin. And that heart full of sin was ready to pick up the fists and to fight God. It didn't take a manual to teach us how to be rebellious and high treasoners to God. It came on board and it was very natural. And so you get to this story and you get to Jonah and you get to this wit's end that the sailors were at, and all of a sudden you begin to realize, wait a minute, what's going to put my hands down so that I don't fight against God anymore? What's going to get me to let my plans go so that I will yield to God and I will come to Him in faith? It's only going to be when a sinner gets into a tight place and there is no more options. So God will let you get into that tight place, friends. He's let me get into them many times. And when we're there and we are at our wit's end and we run out of efforts and run out of options and we cannot save ourselves and we cry out to him, he will deliver us from our distress. Now, this sounds familiar, right? This is salvation. All their efforts could not save them. Listen, you could be a really good person. I'm sure a lot of you are. And you could do a lot of really good things. You could give to charities. You could volunteer at organizations. You could just be kind. 
that won't save you. You cannot get out on your own efforts. You cannot save yourself. You cannot dwell with God in eternity just because you're a really nice person. I can't, you can't. Nobody can. Because listen, in your heart of hearts, you're rebellious, just like me. So all their, heart, all their efforts could not save them. But then finally they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Look at verse 14, Jonah 1. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. God always has a purpose for the storms that you're going to face in life. And when our ships and our plans and our dreams begin to break apart, what are you going to do? Will you cry out to the Lord in trouble and turn to him in faith and trust? Or are you going to keep rowing hard and throwing your cargo overboard or fall asleep in the hold? The unbelieving sailors, amazingly, turned to God in faith. Now watch this. Yet incredibly, Jonah, the wandering believer, the backslidden prophet, never once on that ship cries out to the Lord for mercy. You can read it and find out. Not once. You've got the sailors crying out to the Lord for mercy, but you've got Jonah who knows God so well that this is why he rejected his assignment, chapter 4, verse 2. Listen, you've got Jonah that refuses to cry out. This was not yet the trouble that would turn Jonah back to the Lord in repentance. We're going to see what it is soon. But what we've seen today are four troubles, wandering, bondage, affliction, and storms. And the psalmist closes, and you can stay in Jonah, but let me read it to you. The psalmist closes by writing this, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, friends, I'm going to close in just seconds, but listen to this. I would invite you to do the same thing to attend to these four troubles, to learn from these four examples, to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It's exactly what Jeremiah the prophet called to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. And when he recalled what he knew about God, Jeremiah said, Therefore, I have hope. This is how I'm going to end. Hope is faith in the future because you are utterly confident in the goodness of God. Do you understand that? Hope is faith in the future. Hope is always about the future. Never exception. It is faith in the future because you are utterly confident that God is always good and loving. Are you in trouble? Are you a wanderer? Are you full of affliction in your life? Are you in bondage? 
Are you in a storm in life that you are reeling from? You are in your tight place. And God has got you there by design to help you turn to him and cry out. And he will deliver you from your distress. Amen.